0: Berlin is so dynamic, it's essentially a different city today than it was less than a generation ago. American playwright and author Peter Wortsman likes Berlin so much, he made it his second home. And as we discovered when Peter first joined us a couple months ago on Travel with Rick Steves, he's a particularly perceptive observer when it comes to what lies beneath the surface in his adopted second city. Peter's book about Berlin and his encounters with its haunted history is called Ghost Dance in Berlin, A Rhapsody in Grey. Peter Voitsman, it's good to have you back. Oh, thank you, Rick. Peter, in your book about Berlin, you write of the city's ever-evolving identity and you sum it up with one word, forward.
1: Well, I, I think of Berlin, and, and I mentioned this in the book, as a not a proper noun but as a verb. It keeps Berlining into something else. It starts as this little backwater up in Brandenburg, Prussian backwater, becomes the capital first of a kingdom, then of an empire. Then the empire falls and it becomes the capital of this brief fever dream of modernity of the Weimar Republic. Alas, the Weimar Republic collapses. It becomes then the so-called Thousand-Year Reichstadt, capital of the Third Reich. Fortunately that collapses. Then it's invaded, destroyed. It becomes this rubble heap at the fault line of history, this divided rubble heap. A wall goes up in the midst of it. It becomes two cities. And then in 1989, the wall comes down and it becomes one wild, anarchic,
0: spirited city. Just to hear you review that is, is breathtaking. And, I just, and to get a chance to go there with a little bit of historical background and, and a good guide and a little bit of time and curiosity to piece this all together, You write that Berlin is built on a heap of urban impulses. Berlin is a phoenix forever being reborn. And then you talk about Nefertiti, of all people. Nefertiti is that (laughs) Egyptian statue of an incredible woman who uh, goes back, what, 4,000 years. And Nefertiti is right there in the uh, museum island, in the center of the town, kind of looking out over it all. Well, it's one of the most beautiful statues ever in art history. But when you think of Nefertiti, you're also thinking of Berlin's tumultuous story, and at the same time its stability and its power to survive. Give us the the context. Why did you bring Nefertiti into the book, and, and what does that have to do with anything?
1: She is the kind of symbol of... Look, every museum is a kind of rubble heap of stolen objects from the world. We love our museums, but after all, they're the products of empire, as is the Metropolitan Museum in New York or the Louvre, or the great museums on Museum Insel in Berlin, these are the souvenirs of empire. Often, one empire annexes the souvenirs of another, and here you had the Prussians annexing uh, the great queen of Egypt, and somewhere uh, borrowing or stealing her spirit, they had their pyramids The East Germans had their Fernsehturm, their TV tower, which was supposed to be the symbol of their future thinking society that, of course, then collapsed.
0: And then you've got the big, uh, what was the emperor's residence, which is now a big grassy uh, expanse between the TV tower and Nefertiti, which was a big symbol of empire during Prussian times, wasn't it?
1: It was a, a huge symbol of empire, and the Allied bombs damaged it, but it was not completely destroyed. It was the East German state that decided to tear it down because it was, for them, a retrograde reactionary symbol, and they didn't want it there.
0: But from there, you've got the rubble of the Third Reich and and Hitler's dreams of... Wasn't he going to rename Berlin Germania or something like this?
1: He did re- rename it Germania. He thought this was going to last forever. He wanted it to be the center. He was very envious of Paris, by the way, which he wanted to become then the, the German center of Europe. But Berlin was to be the great capital the great symbol the most telling thing for me was i have a good friend grisha maya whose mother was german father was russian grisha told me the story how his mother as a young girl she was an art student her art teacher told her one day we're going to visit an exhibit we won't talk about it when we get there we'll never talk about it afterwards but it will be the one time in your life that you will ever see real art and that of course was Joseph Goebbels' exhibit of Entartete Kunst, Degenerate Art, which was a collection of Chagall, Picasso, the German Expressionists, all the art that was taboo and forbidden. But the fact is, three times as many Berliners and Germans visited that exhibit than visited the official German art exhibit that nobody really gave a damn about. Wait a minute.
0: During Nazi times, they actually showed off the forbidden art? Oh, yes. But they showed it off as an example of bad art?
1: They showed it off as a kind of a freak show. Yeah. uh, As a kind of a, you see, this is what happens to culture Hmm. when degenerates take over, when uh, Jews take over, when when artists uh, who can't see right, cubists take over, and we want to clean up that mess. But the message didn't get across.
0: Well, people knew what the truth was, so parents were taking their kids and saying, pay attention, this may be the last time you see real art because we're living under this Nazi hell. Yes, wow. yes. Now, when you go to Germany over the years, you see this this whole theme that we're talking about, ever-evolving Berlin. For instance, Potsdamer Platz in the 1920s. That was like the Times Square of Europe. And the site of the first traffic light in all of
1: Europe, it's still uh, recreated uh, symbolically there.
0: But then during the war, of, I mean, after the war, of course, you have the Berlin Wall going right through it. They'd shoot you if you walked across that Platz.
1: Right through it. But today, it's the site of the great German film museum with Marlene Dietrich's uh, former oh, that's wardrobe. Right. Marlene Dietrich's the,
0: right there. It's like
1: in your face. The secular saint of the film museum of Berlin with her
0: wardrobe as close as relics as you can get. And this is a huge towering office part, sort of a celebration of capitalism after the end of the Cold War, and almost like scalps hanging outside of Boonesboro. You've got little little <laughs> chunks of the Berlin Wall out there covered with graffiti, just little finger sandwiches of the Berlin Wall uh, out for people to gawk at and, and mock and take pictures of. It's a, once again this fascinating, ever-evolving Berlin. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Peter Wertzman. Peter's written a fascinating book based on his experience as an American Jew with German-Jewish heritage, looking back at the greatest city of of the German people, Ghost Dance in Berlin. Peter, you also talk in a fascinating way about Alexanderplatz. Talk about the importance of Alexanderplatz to the people of Berlin and and how it has evolved over the years. Can I read you a couple of lines about uh, Alexanderplatz? Please
1: do. Berliners fondly call it Alex for short, like it was an old friend with a familiar pudgy pockmarked face, a perennial beer buzz, and a couple of front teeth missing, that mangy mug has undergone multiple facelifts over the years, and given the prodigious bulge of its cheeks and the various pockets or forecourts it encompasses, it is hard to say just where Alex ends and the rest of Berlin begins, and in a sense it hardly matters, since Alex is as much a state of mind as a precise locale. There's nothing beautiful about it, In fact, it's really rather ugly, as far as urban spaces go, compared to the great monumental squares of Paris, London, and Rome. But Alexanderplatz is positively electric. Pure current, unmediated by wires, rumbling with arriving and departing underground and above-ground trains, trams, taxis, buses,
0: clip-clopping with boots, it's not a place to linger for long." Peter, that is perfect Alexanderplatz. And as you read that, I was thinking uh, over my lifetime, my visits to this square, you know, when Berlin was divided, Potsdamer Platz was cut in half and the city needed a new central square. And my understanding is Alexanderplatz was the central square of eastern Berlin in the shadow of that TV tower. And uh, it was pretty much the best they could do, but almost laughable as far as an advanced modern place, but it was it was the best the DDR could do. And today, it's got that Ugly aliveness, uh, and I just ended up thinking, I want to get a beer and sit here and watch people. And it was a, it was sort of like punk Berlin in a, in a way that was just constantly entertaining, never the same, and it just is a, a living example of how Berlin is this ever-evolving, amazing city.
1: And you have that weird phenomenon of the grill walkers, these young guys with portable ovens wrapped around their middles with bratwursts sizzling on it, you're just dying to eat this stuff. You come out of the subway,
0: and there they are, these human grill walkers parading their wares. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Peter Wurtzman. Peter's book is Ghost Dance in Berlin. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Rick is calling in from Henderson, Nevada. Rick, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call.
1: Uh, And Peter, I and my wife are taking our... Two daughters, 21 and 18, and our son, who's 15, on a two-week trip to Germany. And uh, that'll be their first time in Europe, and I, I know that Berlin is going to be an exciting part of our trip. Is there anything you could recommend for people of that age, the youth, that we could experience in the two short days we have there? Well, inevitably, they're going to be grabbed by the, the Stasi Museum, the museum of the former East German Secret Service. Uh, it's a creepier side of Berlin, but they will be grabbed by it. You can also visit underground Berlin on a tour, going through some of the former bunkers that were there during the Third Reich period. I would strongly, however, suggest they also go to some of the very deeply moving memorials. There's the Jewish Museum, which tells the history of the relationship between those two cultures. There's the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe, but you know what? The other side of Berlin, it's it has more park space than any city of Europe. You can go into the Tiergarten, the zoo is terrific, Zoologischer Garten. You've got to go to some of the museums on Museum Insel and, and do uh, give a hug to Nefertiti. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, you know, I agree. The Museum Island is an amazing uh, collection of four or five world class museums. And as we speak, they are coordinating it all together with one admission ticket and it's just really spiffed up in a, in a beautiful way as, as Berlin continues to knit itself back together. You know, Peter and uh, Rick, one thing I would highly recommend is the uh, river tour down the Spree River. Uh, it used to be such a ugly, people-unfriendly place, but now they've uh, really fixed up the river that goes right through the center of town. Of course, in the old days, they had barbed wire there, and if you swam across it, they'd shoot you. And now it's a park yeah. with grass and they even set up beaches, fake beaches in the summer where they bring in sand. Something else I'd recommend is, if your kids are interested in 20th century history, is the Third Reich Walk. There's all sorts of walking tours in Berlin that are very competitive. I think the, the walk about the Third Reich brings that to life. And there's the movie museum in the Potsdamer Platz, isn't there?
1: Oh, it's great, the history of, of German cinema. We don't realize to what extent our American cinema was profoundly influenced by German cinema, and specifically the emigres that fled the Nazis. I'm talking about Fritz Lang, uh, Ernst Lubitsch, uh, Billy Wilder. These are the greats. And this was the heart and soul of their cinema, the great silence of Dr. Mabuse, Metropolis. You'll see uh, recreations and remnants there. And and the top of the collection is the wardrobe of Marlene Dietrich, the Venus of uh, Weimar Republic. Mm.
0: Enjoy that, Rick. and. Exactly. and- Good for you, that Rick, for great. taking taking your, your family. It'll be a, a powerful experience for your teenage kids. I think that'll be great. Well, I know two
1: days won't do it justice, but uh, we're going to try.
0: It's a good start. Good luck on your trip. Thanks.
1: Thanks, thanks very much. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Peter Wurtzman. Peter's book is Ghost Dance in Berlin. Peter, Berlin is such a complicated city, and it is woven back together again physically, but you still have a little bit of Leftover from the days when it was divided. You've got Aussies and Vessies, right? The, the people who raised in the East and the people who were raised in the West. What are the roots of their differences and how will we see that today?
1: Well, they grew up with very different expectations about the future, a different ideology, a different sense of, of history and their place in history and their place in society. Some Aussies of 60s or older became profoundly disillusioned people their dreams uh, disappeared, life becomes too expensive, they, they can't afford it. And others rolled with the punches. Uh, friends that I have from over there, they were not disillusioned at all with the fall of the totalitarian state. They were disillusioned that some of the ideals were not preserved and were just uh, bulldozed through.
0: Yeah, you see that even today, there's uh, the, sort of the defense of the... Uh... Apple mention, right, just as a symbol of a few of the good things about DDR in eastern Berlin. They still keep the, the jaunty uh, streetlights up from the communist times, and the older people really are considered the lost generation, and the younger people were able to flex with the times and embrace the capitalist ways. But that is quite a, a traumatic adjustment, especially for the older generation.
1: What was amazing to me, I visited uh, the East back in '86. And, of course, at a time when no one ever thought the wall was going to come down, it comes down in a mere three years. And I remember going to a bookstore and people telling me when a book comes out, it was treated like a rock concert in East Germany. People would line three times around the block because they knew it would be a short print run and Mm. it wouldn't be available the next day. So people adored books, and I'm attached to books myself.
0: It's an amazing story for Berlin. Peter, we've been talking all about the complicated and tumultuous history of Berlin and everything, but it's also one of the most creative and affordable and young and happening and and vibrant places you can go in Europe. Of course, in the evening, you want to have a good dinner. Let's finish our talk about Berlin off with you, just taking us to what you think would be a very memorable Berlin dinner. I'm taking you to dinner with all of the contradictions of my palate and my my
1: gut and my soul. I am the child of uh, Jewish refugees from Vienna who was raised to know all of the taboos and the pleasure of indulging in all of the taboos. And now I need to take you to one of the most delicious of the taboos. Dear mother of mine, forgive me. Father's insatiable appetite for the forbidden flesh calls out to me from the hereafter, here and now in Berlin, with all the gastric contradictions of totem and taboo, whenever I see icebein, hamhock on the menu. No foodstuff better exemplifies the German craving and the Jewish prescription for me than this quintessential Berlin dish, a veritable mountain of pork comprising the joint between the tibia fibula and the metatarsals, the tender, fragrant, fat, and fleshy part of the monster, joining knee and hip, or elbow joint and foot, a positively Neanderthal spectacle on the plate. It's a dish that stirs up mixed emotions when ordered in a restaurant, befuddlement on the part of foreign tourists. Did you see what he ordered? Who try to imagine just what it is and how in heaven's name it fits on a plate, utter disgust on the part of avowed vegetarians for whom it constitutes a blatant in-your-face affront, the very incarnation of meat, and awe on the part of repressed cholesterol-conscious carnivores who themselves would not dare go to such extremes in public to satisfy their lust, secretly considering the pornographic craving best indulged in private. The disbelief of my fellow diners is palpable as I dig in. Picture the culinary metaphoric equivalent of highbrow opera buffs compelled to witness a wrestling match. It is indeed a sloppy, slippery task to slice through the blubber of the poached Berlin version.
0: Whoa, a Jewish ode <laughs> to a ham hock. Peter Wortsman, du bist ein Berliner. You <laughs> l- <laughs> Clearly, you love Berlin and the ham hocks that come with it. Peter, thanks so much for sharing your insight into this complicated and fascinating city. Thanks so much. Danke, Rick. Okay, gute Reise. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Germany, Austria and Switzerland, Berlin, Prague and Vienna, and the heart of Belgium and Holland. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.